Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. And when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, and who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall, and she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of the house into the street His blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever it is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. 
And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but they did not find them. So the men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. The book of Joshua began with a commission to Joshua. Now it continues with a covenant with Rahab, perhaps one of the most unlikely subjects that you think would enter into a covenant. Now, again, in this second chapter, it's kind of a spy thriller. I don't know if you are a James Bond fan or a spy thriller fan or a Jason Bourne fan, so I've decided to do the rest of the sermon in my Sean Connery voice. No, I'm not going to do that. I was just teasing you just a little. But wouldn't that be great if we could do it in Sean Connery and make it really feel like a spy thriller? But like any good spy thriller, in order for the story to be riveting, the stakes have to be very, very high. And in this story, the consequences of the drama are going to save Rahab and her family, but it's also going to set in motion a series of events that are going to have a final fruition in the book of Matthew and in the genealogy of Jesus to the coming of the Lord. This is the story of two spies and a brave woman who's going to risk everything to save them. But in the process of risking everything to save them, she's also going to save her family. The woman's conversion is also going to take place in the most unlikely place. And she's going to become an ancestor of Jesse and David and Jesus So look again in verse 1. Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from the Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now again, the story begins with the spy's assignment. The mission, it's top secret. It's classified. Now remember, Joshua is a seasoned spy himself. He, along with Caleb and the other men, were tasked with spying out the land. And his experience at Kadesh Barnea left a permanent scar in his heart from Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Those of you who are familiar, you'll remember that the 12 spies went. Ten of them delivered a bad report. Two of them delivered a good report, but The mission was known to all of the people. And so Joshua decides that he's going to conceal the mission, even from the other tribe members, just in case the spies come back with an unfavorable report. Now we learn about the uh, the Acacia Grove in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. This is the last stop 
before you enter into the land. So when you read Acacia Grove, read the last stop before we enter into the place that God has given to us as a promise. And so for me, the Acacia Grove becomes a type, if you will, and a picture of the last moments of bondage and the numbing journey in the wilderness. They're so close to entering the promised land. Now remember the mission. It's to view the land and focus on Jericho. If I were going to make this into a made-for-TV movie, I might have an exploding pot where you have the your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to spy out the land and particularly go into to Jericho because Jericho is a strategic city that controlled the trade routes. Now, I didn't ask her to put up a map, but if there was a map, if we had a map of 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 the promised land, you'll note that where the Jericho River flows, there is a, a passageway from the Acacia Grove to the place of Jericho, which is really north of the Dead Sea. And for those of you who have been to Jerusalem, you know, and if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, the road goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho. But Jericho is sort of in the center of the land. If, as a matter of fact, if you have a Bible and if you have maps at the end of your Bible, you, you can see just above Bethabra, Jericho. If, if you literally are unfamiliar with Bible lands, think of the Sea of Galilee. Follow the Jordan River almost till it comes to the mouth of the Dead Sea. Just north of there, that's Jericho. And it's going to serve as a strategic entrance, and it is a fortified city. So this city is going to determine whether or not they are going to be able to continue, not only to occupy the land, but then to take over the land. So, remember... Within three days, the people of Israel are going to break camp and they're going to come into the land. So the spies make their way into the land and they find themselves in the house of a harlot named Rahab. Now, just for your information, this is all taking place about 1400 BC. By the way, out of all the people who lived in the city of Jericho in 1400 BC, how many of the names do we know from that time period? None. Rahab's the only one we know. She's the only one we're aware of living in, in the city. Now, we're not even given the spies' names or even the name of the king of Jericho. We're only given her name. And she appears, again, an unlikely character to be the heroine of the story. She's called a harlot. I hope I don't have to spell out what that means. But if you can imagine, as a, as a harlot, she operates a house of prostitution. She, now, to, just to be fair, both to the text and to our story, in the Hebrew language, the word harlot is very much like another word called innkeeper. And so you'll notice she is an innkeeper, and Josephus later on will picture her as an innkeeper. But I suspect that she's probably a harlot and an innkeeper. Why? Because of the repetition in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews 
and in the book of James where she is specifically called a harlot. But what is really the point? The real point isn't that she lives a life of sexual brokenness. The, the real point is that she's a sinner, just like you, just like me. I want you to think for just a moment. She is a person living in Jericho. She is a sinner. She is living in a city that's destined for judgment. This is the story really of all humanity. We are sinners. We're living in a world that's destined for judgment. And it, so it gives us a picture of hope. Wicked individuals living in judgment can experience God's grace and God's mercy. People can turn to the Lord in faith and find deliverance. So again, when you're making your journey outside in the outside world, and I'm sure that you've done this, you've looked at, at buildings and you've anticipated that one day they're no longer going to exist. The shopping lights are going to go off. The buildings are going to crumble. And then you start walking down the street and you look at the faces of the people. And maybe just for a split moment, you look in their face and you look in their eyes and you look at their lives and you ask yourself, I wonder if that person's saved. I wonder if this person is just living a life of emptiness and sorrow apart from God. Now, just for a moment, we also want to pause and consider the claims of the critics. The critic claims that the God of the Bible and the God of Israel is embarking on a genocidal campaign to wipe out innocent people in order to occupy a land that doesn't belong to them. But then for those of you who've been studying with us, you'll remember that I've repeatedly told you when we looked at Joshua in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, did the Lord God repeatedly promise the land to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses? Also, Jericho and its people were the object of God's divine judgment. The Lord God reserved the right to use Joshua and the children of Israel to be the instrument of that divine judgment. In other words, the people of Jericho were hopelessly depraved. And in case you don't believe me, reread Leviticus chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. I'm tempted to go there. I think I will. In, in, uh, in Leviticus chapter 18, I didn't mark it, so I didn't think I was going to go there, but I think I must. It says this, some of you are familiar in verse 21, we go all the way. You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal, defile yourself um, with any animal, um, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. Stand. It's a perversion. No kidding. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I'm casting out before you. 
for the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes, my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. He paints a picture of the grossest, the most severe, the most disgusting activities and behaviors of a people group. Imagine a nation that kills its own children in order to satisfy what it seems to please the gods. Imagine them with no prohibitions or restrictions of any kind whatsoever. The people of Jericho, imagine a city where almost everyone in it is like Jeffrey Dahmer or a serial killer. So the people of Jericho are hopelessly depraved and they had chosen to fight and resist Israel instead of seeking mercy like Rahab. And so this becomes an important point for you. If we ask and we answer the question, does God have the right to judge the world that he created? I think that the answer is yes. But think about our Joshua, Jesus, who says... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus says these words. He says, but God didn't send me into the world to condemn the world. But that through me, the world could be saved. These people are going into this circumstance to spy out the land. And this, of course, is the critic's real concern. Does God have the right to punish sin? The real concern of every critic to this story and to the Bible is they're asking a different kind of a question, and that is, does God have a right to judge me? To hold me accountable for what I am and what I've done? I want you to think for a moment. Rahab believes God. Rahab believes that God is going to destroy Jericho. She believes in the God who has liberated the children of Israel 40 years earlier. She believes it's strong enough that she's willing to turn her back on her own people and her own circumstances. And what do we know about her? Again, we know that she's a sinner. We know, again, some early um, Jewish commentators and even Josephus suggest, well, maybe she's an innkeeper. Maybe it isn't as bad as all that. But like I said, in Hebrews 11.31, it says, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. James 2.25, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? The writers in the New Testament point to her faith that's informed by grace. The text itself and the New Testament writers give us a picture of a person who's under condemnation. God had already decided that he is going to overthrow and he's going to destroy Jericho. It's just a matter of time. Everything 
everyone in the city is about to become completely wiped out. Do you think that the people inside felt they were doomed? Do you think that the people inside thought that they were safe? I'm going to suggest to you that they did think that they were safe. They were living in a fortified city. And we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment of exactly what that means. I'm going to suggest to you that they probably, for the most part, felt like they could withstand whatever siege might be laid against them. They didn't, they didn't understand. They didn't think. They didn't really comprehend the fact that there was an imminent judgment that was about to take place. And again, just think about in our own culture, in our own society. Are there people who think about the end of the world? Yes, there are. You know, people envision an asteroid and coming out and, and wiping out the earth or some climate catastrophe or some nuclear exchange or some plague or something. I mean, I know that there are people who live in constant fear that the earth as we know it is going to come to an abrupt halt. But I'm going to suggest to you that most people don't think that way. Most of your family and most of your friends and most of your neighbors, they don't think that this could be their last day. They don't think that this could be the last cup of coffee that they ever have. They don't think that I could have a car accident. They don't think like the Brazilian team that just crashed in Colombia. Can you imagine when they go off, they play a game, they have every expectation. People play soccer everywhere in South America. Planes are coming and going. You expect your loved one on a plane to come home and then they don't and I'm going to suggest to you that the vast majority of the people in Jericho had no idea what was about to befall them but also it becomes a type and a picture of the people that we live with most people who go to bed tonight will not even consider even for a moment what the Bible says about the future of humanity. And so in verse 2, look what it says. And it was told the king of Jericho saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out our country. <gasps> the secret mission is exposed. This is a top secret classified op. How did they find out? How was, it, how was the king of Jericho told? How did they discover these guys? Now, again... We don't know how that happened. Is it possible that they looked differently or they clothed, their clothes were differently? Clearly, these weren't people who normally would be in Jericho, but Jericho was the crossroads of civilization. The people from the north would usually come through Jericho as they're making their way through Egypt. The Egyptians going up to Assyria are going to make their way through Jericho. It quite literally is a crossroads. But we're not told how we, they find out. A great deal of archaeological research has been conducted in the ruins of Jericho. I've had the privilege of being there three times in the last 30 years. Jericho, for the most part, is closed because of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Jericho's completely controlled, by the way, by the Palestinians. But at the time of Joshua, the city covered about eight acres. That may not seem like very much to you. This building is an acre. 
So imagine a city that's about eight times the size of this church. We also know that there was an outer wall and an inner wall. The inner wall was 12 feet thick, and the outer wall was six feet thick. Both the inner wall and the outer wall was about 30 feet high. And excavations show that the walls were violently destroyed and burnt in times past. So we have great archaeological evidence to support the Bible's account of what's going to happen at Jericho later on in Joshua chapter 6. But look at verse 3. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the country. So again, why does the king seek out Rahab? And how does he know that, it's, that Rahab has knowledge of the spies? We're not told. But apparently they seem to have good information to support it. So the king makes every effort to find these men. Now again, we have every reason to believe that the spies were unaware of their danger at this point. They have no idea that they've been found out. They have no idea that they've been made. They have no idea that the king is after them. And so... We might speculate. How did they know? Again, could be language, could be dress, could be physical appearance. But we have to remember that Rahab saves them and spares their lives. And one of the things that you should be thinking about, even as you're looking at this text and you're reading it, let me ask you the question, could she have turned them in at any moment? Yeah, she could have said, you know what? I'm not going to play this game. I'm here in Jericho. I'm turning them over. But she makes the courageous decision to hide them and not to reveal their presence. And we're given an answer in part in verses 4 through 6. Look, look again what it says. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me. But I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I don't know. Pursue them quickly for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them um, with the stalks of flax, which she had laid out in order on the roof. Now the, the, the stalks or the stems of flax is a type of a plant, if you will that they would soak in water and they would cut it in lengths of three or four feet and after soaking it in water, they would put it on top of the roof to dry out because they're going to peel the stalks because they're, they use this to make linen sheets or linen clothes or, or fabric just like you would cotton. And so apparently there is a roof and she's hiding them under there. So again, what would lead us to believe that Rahab 
has a change of heart, that something is happening to her, that, that something dramatic and fundamental is changing inside of her. And I'm going to suggest to you that there are several reasons. Number one, it would seem that she's willing to turn from her old life and embrace a new life with the children of Israel and the people of Israel. Something is happening to her. She's living in a world where she sees and understands that whatever kind of a life that she has and the circumstance that she finds herself in is unacceptable and she is going to make one of the most courageous choices that you could ever make. And that's to turn from the people that you grew up with and that you cared about and to turn your back on them and identify with the people of God and the things of God. Clearly, Rahab's actions are treasonable But her courage and other signs of faith include the fact that, number one, she hides the spies. She admits that the strangers had come, but she denies the knowledge of their intent in verse 4. She claims that the spies left the city before nightfall, before the closing of the city gate. However, she doesn't know their whereabouts in verse 5. She suggests that that they might be captured if the guards act quickly in verse 5. She hides them on the roof under the stalks of of the flax. And people, again, the critic will say, she lied. Does God approve of lying? And you know what the right answer to that is? The right answer is, of course God doesn't approve of lying. The Bible doesn't say, oh, by the way, we approve of lies. The Bible rather approves of her faith. And her courage. The Bible doesn't seem to criticize her for lying, but applauds her for her faith and for her courage. This has prompted questions like, if you were living in Nazi Germany in 1943, would you hide Jews? If you're living in Mosul, in 2016, and Muslim terrorists come because they're going to crucify Christian children and chop their head off. Are you going to protect them? What are you willing to do to protect them? And so we can debate the morality or we can remind ourselves that this woman, desperate, desperate to keep these men alive is going to make a very difficult choice. In verse 7 it says, Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had got out, they shut the gate. The king's patrol, they leave. They take her advice and they head out in hot pursuit. And by the way, the fords are the place that you would go to the Jordan in order to cross the river. But this gives us a geographical clue as to where Rahab's house was located. The archaeologists reading the text and thinking about the layout of Jericho on the eight-acre plain, there's going to be a north side, and there's going to be a south side, and there's going to be an east side, and there's going to be a west side, and we know that her house is on the western wall. It's the wall that faces the Judean mountains, because on the eastern side is the Jordan, and so she sends the soldiers in the opposite direction. And so, 
Rahab has made a decision. She's going to leave her old life. She's going to embark on a new life with the people of God. And that's what every single Christian does at some point in their life, don't they? They have to come to grips and they have to ask and answer the question. Am I going to identify myself with a world that's under judgment? Or, or am I going to identify myself with God's Savior and with God's people? And that's exactly what we do. We forsake sin. We embark on a new life in Christ. We repent, we turn from our sin, we turn to the Savior. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, it says, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And Rahab is at that crossroads in her life. What am I going to do and how am I going to do it? And Again, there are clues that are given to us. Rahab believes the testimony concerning God in verses 8 through 11. Look what it says. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them. So in the story, it's a flashback. She's taken them up to the roof before they hide under the flax stalks that are there on the roof. She has this conversation with them. So this is a flashback that has taken place before she lies to the king and to the soldiers. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things... Our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Listen carefully to what she's saying. Rahab is making a confession. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Think about that for just a moment. The moment she admits... I know that the Lord has given you the land. She's admitting that their occupation, their time is up. Rahab believes the testimony of God. She believes what she's heard about the true and living God. Again, keep in mind, Rahab could have betrayed them at any moment, at any moment, in any Point in the process of this story, she could have turned them in. But she opens her heart to God and the spies under this strong conviction about her life and the life of her family. And in that conviction, she gives important information to the spies about the people and their state of mind, this is the information that Joshua needs. The people are gripped by terror and fear over the presence of Israel, and Joshua needs to know that. He needs to know their mindset. 
The same is true for you. You need to know the mindset of the people that you live with and that you talk to. Some of you remember what it was like to be unsaved. You remember what it was like to live in the dark, in the wickedness. You remember what it was like to go to bed at night wondering, I wonder if the Bible's true and I wonder if Jesus is really the Lord. I wonder if there really is a heaven and, and there really is a hell. Many of you may have grown up in a religious tradition and you believed it a little bit, but not enough to sort of change your life or to change your mind. Some of you remember the mindset of what it was like to be an unbeliever what it was like to be terrified that you might die and that you're not ready. Rahab confesses that the God of Israel is, look what it says, the God of heaven and earth in verse 11. And in that confession that God is personal and God is powerful and that he is supreme and that he is true and that the God worshipped by the, by the people of Israel could keep his promises to them about the land. Rahab believes the testimony about God. And what does that tell us about ourselves? We too have to believe the Bible's testimony, don't we? We believe what the Bible says about God, about Jesus, about the truth of the human condition, the truth of the future that we have. Now, Rahab requests salvation for herself and her family in verses 12 through 16. Look what it says. Now, therefore, she says, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. In other words, a covenant, an exchange. Give me something to know that I am going to be okay. In verse 13, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours. Remember all along, all along. Can she turn them in at any moment? Could she say, unless you're willing to spare my family, I'm not willing to spare you. Could she have berated them and, and, and manipulated them and, and been self-serving? But she's not. Look what she says. What they respond, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Here's the deal. Don't betray us. And we won't betray you. Verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window. For her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, get to the mountain. Lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward you may go your way. In brief, Rahab makes a desperate plea. She pleads for the life of her family. To be saved from death. She wants a guarantee of safety. She wants no harm to come to her family in verse 12. She expresses the sincere belief that the people of Israel, are they going to win or are they going to lose? They're going to win. 
They're going to prove victorious. This is her way of saying, I know you're going to win. I know we're going to lose. I know that this city and everyone in it is destined to die. The only way that's not going to happen is if you deal kindly with me. That's what she's saying. And so she wants the assurance in verse 14. Spare my family. And she's given the assurance. The spies make an oath. One that must be honored by Joshua and the incoming army. In other words, the spies are negotiating a deal. And when they're negotiating this deal, is Joshua going to have to honor the deal? The answer is yes. The spies pledge their word and their lives. The spies are offering their lives in pledge for the promise. Their lives become the guarantee that Rahab and her family will be safe. However, again, Rahab must not betray them. If they're betrayed, they're released from their oath in verse 20. Now Rahab is going to demonstrate that faith in a real way, in a tangible way, in a recognizable way. She's going to allow her faith to become real and then to be put into action. And this is exactly what the New Testament writer says, that Rahab isn't saved simply by faith, but by works. In what sense? In the sense that what she deeply believes she's now going to have to act upon. And she will demonstrate it in a recognizable way. She's going to allow her faith to become real. She helps the spies escape and even advises them to seek shelter in the mountains, knowing that the king's soldiers are in the opposite direction. Now think about what's happening. She's calling on the spies to spare her family. That's exactly what we do. We call on the Lord to be saved. We call on him because we believe in him and we trust in him. In the New Testament, it says, Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. The Bible says, call upon the Lord and he will save you. In Romans chapter 10 verse 12 it says, For there is no difference between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto us that call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's an invitation that a real God who can really help. And so many times you have mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters and neighbors and friends. And you say to them, call on the Lord. And they'll say, well, I prayed and he didn't listen. What do you say to them? The Bible says that if you'll call upon him, he will listen. The Bible, know, the Bible says he knows the truth about you and he knows the truth about your heart and he knows the truth about what you're willing to do or not do. And this is what the Bible says, that if you'll call on him, he will save you. And look, Rahab receives instructions for herself and her family's salvation. At the end of the chapter, look what it says in verse 17. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless... When we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window 
through which you let us down unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household into your own house. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid upon him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which you made a swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Now I want you to think about this. The scarlet rope, uh, the scarlet cord, it was a rope of some sort and it was the color of scarlet. Now think about this for just a moment. It's tied at one end and it's dropped down this 30 foot wall and it becomes the instrument of the spy's salvation. They're going to be safe from death because of that rope. And her family is going to be saved from death because of that rope. Now many have seen again in the scarlet cord of Rahab a type, a picture of safety through sacrifice. Sir Arthur Helps writes, quote, was anything real ever gained without sacrifice of some kind? And I've told you repeatedly, salvation in the Bible, from a spiritual sense, is always by grace. It's always by faith. It's always by a sacrifice. It's always by a person. So Rahab is given three conditions for saving herself and her family before leaving the spies, spell out exactly what has to be done. The conditions have to be followed to the letter. Number one, look what it says. Rahab must leave the scarlet rope lying in her house and then tie it to the window in verse 18. The rope identifies her house as the house of safety. The soldiers will pass by that house. In other words, they will execute judgment on the entire city, but they will not execute judgment on that house. It becomes a picture of sacrifice, of blood. It becomes a type and a picture, if you will, just like the Passover lamb, when the avenging angel comes for the children of Israel, they see the blood on the doorpost and they pass their way. There'll be more about this later. Number two, Rahab has to bring her family into the house and keep them there in verses 18 and 19. She had to make sure that no one would leave the safe house, if any member of her family would not come and would not stay, if any member decided to rejoin the people of Jericho, they're rejoining a people destined for judgment and execution. You don't have to be a theologian to figure this out, do you? The church isn't the safe house. There's only one place where you can run to and be safe from a world that's destined to die. It has to be 
a type and a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why you invite your family and your friends. You, you have to say to them, you can come to my house and I hope you feel safe when you're at my house. But in order for you to be safe from the coming a judgment, you have to run into the house that's been designated. And number three, Rahab must remain true to her promise. She can't betray the spies, but rather she's called upon to protect them in verse 20. If she breaks her commitment to protect them, she will die. By the way, if she doesn't hang out the cord, her house can't be identified as safe. If she goes back to the people who are under judgment, she can't be safe. Again, all of this becomes a type and a picture for you as the Christian. We trust Christ's blood. We repent and separate from the world. And we, we must not turn back. We must not turn back. And you're, you will be tempted throughout your life. I wonder, I wonder if I should go back. I wonder if I should go back to that life. I wonder if I should go back to that world. So again, we see in these conditions a picture of ourself. And look at Rahab saving faith finally. It says they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way but did not find them. The, so the two men returned, descended from the mountain, crossed over. They came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed, all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Do you remember the information that they need? What is their frame of mind? What is their state of mind? What is the preparation that they've made? Are they, are they going to be physically, mentally, and emotionally capable of resisting us? We know the answer. And so, what were the results of Rahab's faith? Think about what you've just read. She saves the spies. By the way, she will save others. The spies are able to return and give the full report to Joshua. The spies take advantage and heed the advice of Rahab. They stay in the hills for the three days. The king's guard searches carefully, doesn't find them. And when they couldn't find them, they return to the king with their own sad report. And the spies returned to Joshua with their glad report. Clearly, they spoke of Rahab's help and the promises made. And by the way, we see how all of this works out in Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 27. It's okay if you read ahead. You won't get in trouble for reading ahead. And look at the spies' faith. The Lord has given us the land. The Canaanites are panic-stricken. And they are terrified. I want you to think about this in relationship to yourself. Sometimes your family is going to be terrified and panic-stricken. That you've decided to trust Jesus. To love him. And to serve him. What did you do? I became a Christian. What? I didn't raise you that way. 
I raised you to be a heathen dog sinner like me. It's terrifying to some of your family and friends when you say, no, I believe the world is under judgment. I believe the only way I'm going to escape judgment is to trust Jesus with my life. The woman Rahab will find her way into the genealogy of Jesus. She's a harlot, a pagan, a sinner, condemned by God, living in a city destined for judgment. But then we see in her a picture of grace. The city's been under condemnation and judgment, by the way, for 400 years. But I'm going to suggest something else to you. When we fast forward to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, we see one of the most remarkable passages in all of the scripture. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. I want you to think about that verse. She's a harlot, but she's going to escape. And she's going to identify with the people of God. And you know what's in her future? Think about what you just read. There's a wedding in her future. She's going to get married. There's a wedding in her future. She's going to get married and she's going to have a baby. And there's a wedding in your future. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a wedding in your future. Well, you know what? I've lived a pretty despicable life. I know. You don't have to tell me your horror story. I've got my own. But there's a wedding in your future and there's a wedding in her future. Because she's not simply going to be saved. She's going to be saved for a purpose. A harlot finds a husband. And while Jericho perishes, a marriage feast and a marriage ceremony is going to be a part of her future. When this world perishes, a marriage ceremony is going to be a part of your future. Now, now again, Rahab is saved by faith. She's not going to be saved because she has an excellent character. And she's not going to be saved because she's very religious. She's going to be saved because she will turn from the world in which she lives and turn to a God who can spare her and make good his promises. And she has to trust that whoever the spies report to, that they'll keep their promise. Who do the spies report to? Who do you report to? You report to Jesus. They report to Joshua and we report to Joshua. Because you heard somebody 
say something. A person said to you, there's a God in heaven who loves you, who's willing to forgive you and cleanse you and wash you if you'll turn from this world, if you'll believe that it's under judgment and that he can save you and that Jesus will save you then you can rest assured that our Joshua will keep his promise. And that, my friends, is chapter 2. But the adventure is going to even increase in drama. So let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time. Lord, what a wonderful picture. Lord, we get to see Not just this amazing story, but we get to see in the story a picture of ourselves and our own future. And Lord, again, when we think of the testimony of the New Testament concerning Rahab, she believed God. It makes perfect sense to us that, again, we live in a world where people don't believe the truth. But, Lord, we pray. We pray that you would help us, that you would help us communicate the truth in such a way that hearts would be gripped and people would be persuaded that maybe what the Bible says about the future of this world is true and that we can escape judgment by placing our confidence in the captain of our salvation, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.